I hope you've been benefiting by studying Jacob's life. I certainly have been. How many realize that this life is a process? Includes lots of things, doesn't it? And God is working through all the events of our life, just very simply, to make us like him, to refine us. He's doing the very same things in Jacob, and as we, as we study Jacob's life, we learn some things about uh, what God's doing in our own life. We last left off, we're in chapter 30, pick up at verse 25. Jacob is married. He has 11 sons and one daughter. He's been working for Uncle Laban for 14 years. And that's where we pick up our account. So just read with me, verse 25. After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me on my way so I can go back to my own homeland. Give me my wives and children for whom I have served you, and I will be on my way. You know how much, I've, how much work I've done for you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, please stay. I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. He added, Name your wages and I will pay them. Jacob said to him, You know uh, how I have worked for you and uh, how your livestock has fared under my care. The little you had before I came has increased greatly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I have been. But now, when may I do something for my own household? What shall I give you, he asked, meaning Laban. Don't give me anything, Jacob replied. But if you will do this one thing for me, I will go on tending your flocks and watching over them. Let me go through all your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark-colored lamb, and every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages. And my honesty will testify for me in the future. Whenever you check on the wages you have paid me, any goat in my possession that is not speckled or spotted or any lamb that is not dark-colored will be considered stolen. Agreed, said Laban. Let it be as you have said. That same day, he, meaning Laban, removed all the male goats that were streaked or spotted and all the speckled or spotted female goats, all that had white on them, and all the dark-colored lambs, and he placed them in the care of his sons. And then he put them a three-day journey between himself and Jacob while Jacob continued to tend the rest of Laban's flocks. Jacob, however, took fresh-cut branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees, and made white stripes on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood on the branches. And then he placed the peeled branches in all the watering troughs so that they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. When the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they mated in front of the branches. And they bore young that were streaked or speckled or spotted. Jacob set apart the young of the flock by themselves, but made the rest face the streaked and dark-colored animals that belonged to Laban. Thus he made separate flocks for himself and did not put them with Laban's animals. Whenever the stronger females were in heat, Jacob would place the branches in the troughs in front of the animals so that they would mate near the branches. But if the animals were weak, he would not place them there. So the weak animals went to Laban and the strong ones to Jacob. 
In this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and maidservants and manservants and camels and donkeys. Interesting episode in Jacob's life. And there's some tremendous uh, things for us to learn from this. As I said, said to you, Jacob now has worked for Laban for 14 years. He has two wives, two maidservants who born him children. He has 11 sons. He has one daughter. His work has been highly, highly productive for Laban. However, Jacob has nothing of his own. He has no money, he has no flocks, he has nothing. And he wants to take his family and he wants to return to his own homeland, back to Beersheba, where his inheritance is still yet awaiting him. Remember, he has the birthright. He had purchased it from Esau, Esau had sold it to him. His father had pronounced a blessing on him with the birthright. It was prophesied that the, younger, the older would serve the younger. So he very logically, very naturally wanted to return home. It's probable that he had heard nothing in those 14 years from Beersheba, from his family, and he probably became restless, dissatisfied with the current situation that he's living in. So you no, doubt, no doubt he would be anxious to return home back to Beersheba. So Jacob goes to Laban, and he announces his decision to leave, to return home, asking for his wives and his sons his children to be released to him. He reminded Laban that he had fulfilled all that he'd agreed to. He'd done all that he promised he would do. And it, in essence, Laban had no further moral or legal claim on him or indeed his family. So he wants to go. Now, as you might understand, Laban is not anxious to see Jacob go. Why would that be? He's been a source of great prosperity to, to Laban. I mean, if you have someone who's working for you and they've been very, very productive, very, very fruitful, you're very reluctant to see them go. They're an asset to you. And so Jacob is reluctant. He had prospered greatly because of Jacob and because of his abilities and his faithfulness. And so Laban wants to enter into another bargain with Jacob. Laban even acknowledges to Jacob that it was the Lord blessing him through Jacob. Verse 27, he says, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Now Laban is a pagan. He's not a believer. He doesn't believe in the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob at this point. But it's interesting to note that the, uh, the Hebrew word for divination is also the same word for serpent. And uh, in, in these heathen rites of worship, these heathen practices, the serpent was always connected with magic. The serpent was always connected with divination. So hence the same word would be used. And in all these false religions, sorcery, occultism, magic, witchcraft, and the like, are all traced back to the serpent of old, the devil himself. And God overrules uh, Laban's divined insights. He overrules them so that Laban does get the message very clearly that indeed Jacob 
was under special care of the Lord and was because of Jacob that the Lord had blessed him. So there's no doubt in Laban's mind whatsoever. And now Laban, Laban had previously gotten the better bargain by letting Jacob name his own wages, hadn't he? He allowed Jacob to, to uh, take, the, take the initiative, say, well, this is what I'll work for, and assuming that Jacob would not, uh, not try to cheat him and so forth. And so again, Laban makes the same proposition to Jacob. Jacob only had to name his price. And Laban assured him that he would meet it if Jacob would only keep working for him. Now Jacob, at this point, in verse 30, would take this opportunity to give his own testimony to the effect of God's blessing Laban through him. He shares his testimony. This is tremendous. He reminded Laban that he had been completely responsible for his flocks for 14 years and that the relatively small flock that he had, this puny little few animals that he had, had increased greatly under his care. But Jacob doesn't take the credit for it. He said this blessing had indeed come from the Lord, though Jacob had done his part to be faithful, had done his part to be industrious, God had blessed it. So we, we in effect, we do our part. What do we do? We, we sow, we, we water, we work hard, we show up on time, we're faithful, and God gives the harvest, right? Every time, God always gives the harvest. That, that relieves us of the responsibility of having to make something happen. We just show up, do our part, walk faithfully, and the Lord does the rest. I remember when before I, uh, right after I became a brand new Christian, that uh, I had gone through a divorce, a number of you know my testimony, and I, I had no money, I had no job, I had no business, I had no nothing. And I was literally penniless, and so I needed to get a job really fast, and uh, lawyers' fees were mounting up. And uh, so I had previously worked as a pharmacist, and uh, I didn't like pharmacy, so I didn't want to go back to work as a pharmacist, but I had to because it was the only thing I had to fall back on that I could make, make some money at. So I began to read the, uh, the uh, L.A. Times want ads to see if there was any job advertisements. People wanted to hire pharmacists. And there was this one job, I'll never forget this, and I called the number, and, and the guy said, well, come on down, I'll talk to you and interview you. And it was a little, little one-man pharmacy over here in Torrance in a little medical building. And uh, as soon as I walked in, all the familiar smells of all the drugs and medicines came back to me. I went, oh, I hate this. <laughs> I did not want to go back to work as a pharmacist. I'd, had, I'd been all, you know, just having a, a different, different life, and just that, that kind of thing was just not appealing to me. But I needed a job. And so the fellow interviewed me. And he turned out to be, he was, he was Jewish, he, he didn't believe in God. Now, I'm a brand new believer, you have to understand this. And so I'm looking for every opportunity I can to witness, to tell people about the Lord. And so I'm talking to him about the Lord and tell him I'm a Christian and such. And he's just rolling his eyes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I left there, and I, I wasn't real enthusiastic about going to work. And so I, I just didn't do a real good job on the interview, I felt. And uh, it was about a week and a half or so, and I hadn't heard anything, and I didn't call. So finally, he calls me back. 
And he said, uh, he said, do you want this job? And I said, it's still available? He said, I've been waiting for you. You know, where are you? What, you want the job? I said, well, obviously, yes. So I went back down, and, and uh, he hired me. And I told him, I said, I want you to know something. I said, I told you I was a Christian. I'm a born-again Christian. And uh, God is going to bless your business because I'm here. And he just, you know, he just had no category for that. No one had ever said anything like that. And so I would remind him, I worked for him for about a year and a half, I would remind him periodically that because his business kept increasing. And he would note that. He would say, you know, he says, uh, business is doing really well. And I said, you know what, this is why. I said, every day when I come in and I, I... I open the pharmacy. I lay hands on your cash register. <laughs> he said, you do what? <laughs> I said, I lay hands on your cash register and I pray God increase Larry's business because I'm here. And so at, at the end of a year and a half, uh, uh, Julie and I had, had met and uh, we had decided to marry and, and I was going to go to seminary and so I announced to him that I was going to be leaving and going to seminary. He begged me to stay. <laughs> but I left, and uh, six months after I left, his business folded. And, you know, all I can say is I think there's a connection. <laughs> I witnessed to him, and witnessed to him, witnessed to him, witnessed to him. He would never, in fact, he did come to our wedding. And uh, it was great to see him. But nonetheless, here's, here's Jacob testifying to Laban that his flocks had increased because of God working through Jacob's life in his midst. And so you and I, as believers, we have a tremendous privilege to be a source of blessing, don't we, to our uh, non-believing employers, those that we work for, those who are uh, under their authority, that they look at us and they, they see that there is a connection between the, the way their business is going and the fact that we're there. We ought to be a blessing, shouldn't we? I think so. But now, for Jacob, it's, it's only reasonable that having fulfilled all of his commitments to Laban, that he should now be able to begin to provide for his own family. That's his, that's his goal now. So Laban asked him again, you know, what's it going to take for you to stay? What, what, what can I give you? Now that's not a phrase that Jacob wants to hear from Laban. What can I give you? Last time he said, I want to give you my daughter. He worked 14 years. So Jacob is a little sensitive, I think, to that word give from Laban. Giving. You know that most people don't really give today? Most people trade? Whenever I would do a wedding ceremony, and, and that's one of the things I, I say to the couple, to develop an attitude to outgive one another. Because most people today in relationships and in every other environment, they're just trading. They think they're giving, but the way we know that we're only trading is because when one person backs off, the other person backs off too. Well, if you're not going to, then I'm not going to. You're always trading in the first place. Which is a, just, it's death to a relationship. 
And so for us, we are, we are to be giving people. God loved us so much that he, he gave. He gave his own son. And his great project, if I can use that, that phrase, his project is to make us more and more like him. And so as you progress in your Christian life, you ought to be able to see that you become a more giving person, more gracious. Your life is marked by graciousness, not by selfishness, not by self-centeredness, not by stinginess. But those things begin to be diminished in your life. They, they take on less and less and less of an influence. And so Laban says, what shall I give you? And Jacob says, don't give me anything. Jacob knew that God would supply what he wanted him to have. He'd worked for Laban for 14 years. You think in 14 years he'd had time to ponder his past, ponder all that he had done with his father and his brother. He'd left his mother. He's been 14 years away from home. Everything he knew, everything he loved everything he treasured. He's 14 years now away. Do you think that that would be time for him to ponder his past? Do you think that maybe he's experienced some changes? I think so. In fact, I see the fact, the very fact that he does what he does uh, in this particular passage. It gives evidence of that. Jacob had come to a place where he knew. He knew. He didn't have to connive. He didn't have to uh, maneuver that God would indeed provide for him what he wanted him to have. And further, Jacob didn't want to be indebted to Laban any longer, as he had been for the past 14 years. So don't give me anything. (laughs) So Jacob turns the whole deal around, and he offers a proposition now to Laban. There's an opportunity here for him. And this proposition would give the Lord the opportunity to bless Jacob materially as he had Laban through Jacob. So this proposition is going to prosper Jacob, but it will also prosper Laban. So it's a, it's a win-win-win all the way around. It would bring blessing to Jacob without taking anything from Laban. And the proposition allowed Jacob to continue to work for Laban shepherding his flocks exactly as he had been doing, and his pay would consist simply of those animals that were the least desirable in Laban's flock, all the off-colored animals. And they were generally considered to be less desirable, uh, more easily disposed of than the uh, whole-colored, the more pure animals in the flock. So Jacob agreed also that none of the solid colored animals would be taken into his own flocks. Indeed, if any should be found, even in the future, by Laban in Jacob's flocks, then uh, Laban could come and take them away. Only those animals that would be speckled or spotted or abnormally colored in some way would become Jacob's wages. And Jacob further proposed that none of those speckled or spotted animals taken by him would even be used for breeding purposes. In fact, he would separate them into a separate flock and keep them away from the normal colored animals. Now, verse 33 in that passage tells us that in the future, any speckled or spotted animals that would be born from those normal colored animals would also become his. 
Now, since the normal colored animals were far more numerous, and since it was much less likely that they would bear abnormally colored animals, the proposition would highly be favorable to whom? Laban. I mean, this is a deal Laban cannot pass up. Here's Jacob says, look, I'll work for you, and here's my wages. Let me cull out of your flock all of the least desirable animals. They'll become my wages. And I'll watch your pure, solid-colored flock and any other animals that are born spotted or speckled out of that flock, they'll, I'll add to my wages. But Laban knows that the chances of the spotted ones born from the pure are, are, are minimal. So Jacob puts himself entirely, entirely in God's mercy, doesn't he? He deliberately puts himself at a point of disadvantage. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Is any Christian really at a point of disadvantage? No. No, not really. But how many times do we look at ourselves in being at a disadvantage, and so we have to go and try to make the best deal we can make? You know what I'm saying? Rather than saying, Lord, you know, even I'm going to take the lowest seat because I know that if you want me to be up in the front row, you'll move me up to the front row. I know if you want me to prosper, you're going to prosper me. My part is to be faithful. My part is to honor you. My part is to be truthful. My part is to be honest. My part is to work hard. My part is not to worry and to fret and to finagle and to try to make something happen by dishonest or deceptive means. Now, Jacob has come a long way. This is a, this is a signal to us that he is not the same man that he was back in Beersheba when he deceived his brother and his father. He doesn't need to do that now. He willingly, willingly puts himself at a position, if you will, of disadvantage. This gives God the opportunity to bless him however he would choose. Can you be content in whatever circumstance you find yourself and just trust God, Lord, if you're going to prosper me, you'll find a way. You'll open a door that no man can open and you'll prosper me. Now remember, all of this, this is very, very important. When we use that word prosper, we have to keep it in context. Prosper according to God's purpose and will. Does God have a purpose for Jacob? Yes, he's a patriarch. He's going to be the patriarch of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's integral to God's purpose of bringing the Messiah into the world. Does God have a specific purpose for your life and my life? Absolutely. Not only generally as believers to propagate the gospel, to make disciples, but he has specific purposes for each of our lives in the lives of other people around us. He's gifted each of us differently. We all have a specific ministry calling within the greater context. But nonetheless, when you think of the term prosperity, it's not that God wants you to have this or that in particular thing. In, in, in your will, it's his will. Am I making sense? We always have to bear that in mind when we talk about blessing and prosperity, that God's will will be done. And so Jacob, again, puts himself in this place 
And it would be up to the Lord now. It would be up to the Lord and uh, through whatever circumstances to see whether Jacob would prosper personally or not. Now Laban, Laban sees this deal and he leaps immediately at it and he says, agreed, agreed. Let it be as you have said, verse 34. He would lose nothing in the bargain, nothing of any value to him really, and it appeared to him very unlikely that Jacob would acquire any future animals by this process. He's got to be thinking, whoa, this Jacob, this is a great deal. Jacob has no breeding stock of his own yet. And none of the animals from which his pay was to come would be likely to produce spotted or speckled or streaked animals, offspring of their own, without a spotted, speckled population to interbreed with. Because he's got them all separated. They're going to be separated now. So he's working with a flock that the chances of producing offspring that are off-color are very, very, very slim. It doesn't look good for Jacob. You ever face life like that? It doesn't look good. I have no good job prospects. I have no hope. Yes, you have hope. You have more hope than anybody you have God in your life. Our part is to continue to pray. Our part is to continue to evidence faith. Our part is to say, Lord, I know that you have a great plan. I'm going to go through what I need to do, and I'm going to trust you for the results. Somebody say amen to that. Although Jacob had given Laban no reason whatsoever to mistrust him, it's hard for men who are themselves dishonest to trust anybody else. Isn't that true? Laban is not an honest man. He is not an honest man. Jacob is not deceiving him, and Jacob has given him no reason to mistrust him. But in Laban's mind, this deal is so unbelievably good that he's thinking there must be a catch to it. Perhaps, perhaps while Jacob is out alone with the flocks and I can't be watching him all the time, perhaps he will bring together some of the flocks of normal colored and some of the off-colored flocks together when I'm not watching and interbreed them. Can you see how someone would think that? Sneaking around, can't trust them? Again, remember, now Jacob has given Laban no reason to mistrust him, but Laban, by very nature, would probably think that. So Laban, Laban decided not to trust Jacob to keep the two sets of flocks separate. Verse 35 says, Laban himself, now remember Jacob had said, let me go through the flocks and cull out these off-colored animals. But Laban goes through, verse 35, Laban himself goes through the flocks, removed all those off-colored animals, and put them into a separate flock. Further, he entrusts them into his son's hands and has his sons take them a distance of a three days journey away so that he makes sure that there's no possible contact between the off-colored animals and the solid-colored animals. You got the picture here? Jacob does not trick Laban in any way. He has really grown. God has done a work in this man's life. He has done a work in this man's life. God is at work in our life. He is at work in our life. And sometimes it takes 14 years to get us to a place. 
Again, life is a process. Growth is a process. Maturity is a process. You can drop out. You can opt out. You can quit. You can say, oh, this is too hard. But if you're a true believer, you're going to stay in the process believing that God is at work in your life and that he has a direction and a purpose for you and his will will be done. The Christian always has hope. Even in the midst of the most devastating life events, the Christian always has hope. Sometimes it's hard to maintain that perspective. And even when you lose it, God is still faithful to bring it back. But there are people who do, who do quit, who opt out for one reason or another, tragically. But Jacob does not trick Laban in any way. In fact, when you really think about it and you examine this bargain that Jacob proposes, he makes the bargain as difficult for himself and as generous for Laban as it could possibly have been. He is really putting himself at a disadvantage. And the means Jacob uses, presumably to influence the increase of his flocks, are really strange. Do you ever wonder about this? Look at what Jacob does. The two flocks are separate now. He's got a solid colored flock that he's in charge of. How is he going to possibly increase these off-colored animals from this solid flock? Does he use magic? Does he use some obscure, ancient practice of animal husbandry that no one knows about except him? How does he go about this? This is absolutely fascinating. We're told that he peels branches, fresh-cut branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees... He peels the branches to form strips on the branches. In other words, as I understand it, there's, there's, a, there's a strip, a white strip to expose the, bark, expose the wood, then there's bark, then there's wood, then there's bark, then there's wood, then there's bark. So you get there's, this striped branch. And then he takes those branches, and what does he do with those branches? He puts them in the watering troughs so that when the animals come to drink, they presumably see these stripped branches in the watering troughs. This is a miracle of animal husbandry. (laughs) Was it that somehow the sight of those stripped, striped branches could transmit through the brain and then in some way act as a signal to the DNA molecules to specify certain characteristics to be triggered in the embryo. Well, to us it seems highly unlikely, naturally speaking. It seems more like superstition. It seems more like something maybe he just picked up along the way. Now remember, he's been shepherding for almost 20 years now. So he's got a lot of experience. He's seen and heard of a lot of things. You know, if you've been in the line of work for a long time, you hear a lot of things, don't you? Sometimes you're tempted to try some of the crazy things that people say. This might have been one of those things. Although it is true, when you think about it, that certain chemicals can and do have a significant prenatal influence if they can reach the embryo or even prior to conception, 
uh, the DNA in the reproductive cells. They can have an effect. And we know that there are certain drugs, certain medications, certain chemicals, alcohol, smoking, that a pregnant woman shouldn't drink, a pregnant woman shouldn't uh, smoke, because the chemicals will indeed affect the fetus in a negative way. It is possible that certain chemicals in the wood or maybe possibly even in the bark of those trees, those peeled rods of which were actually in the water which the flocks came to drink, it's possible that certain chemicals were somehow capable of affecting the animals in some way. That's a possibility. If nothing else, water treated in this way may have served as an aphrodisiac or fertility promoter. We don't know for sure. And further, whether or not the sense of sight can actually mark an embryo in some way, there is no doubt that what one sees can have a strong effect on certain physiologic mechanisms in the body. Isn't that true? At least humanly speaking. The blushing effect. You see something, that, that, and as a result of seeing it, there's a, there's a, a response produced, blushing. Or the, you see some, some gruesome thing, and it may make you nauseous. We know the, the reality of how uh, we can be visually stimulated uh, in, a, in a sexual manner. So we know that there's a connection between, at least for humans, what we see and there's a physiologic response in our life. Isn't that true? So it's not beyond the realm of possibility that somehow this may have affected the animals. Maybe it's that the mere sight of those striped rods may have served simply as an aphrodisiac when the animals came to drink. But we don't know for sure. All things considered, it seems most likely that this is what Jacob had in mind. Somehow, somehow to stimulate these animals to speed up the reproductive process and to introduce into those animals, or to induce those animals to have as many offspring as possible in the shortest time as possible. Now, if he can get these animals to reproduce much more quickly, to increase this in the shortest time possible, what does that mean for him? Now, he knows statistically, just from being a shepherd, he knows statistically, even in a pure flock, that there are going to be some statistical anomalies. There are going to be some animals that are going to be born off color, right? He knows that. He's just observed that over the years. So if he can increase the flock in terms of its reproductiveness, then he can speed up the rate at which he can see these animals, the ones that he wants, uh, the ones he's looking for, born more quickly. And then, in fact, the animals do conceive, and they did bear um, offspring, and Jacob was very surprised to note that the larger portion, proportion that he had expected actually now begins to be seen he begins to see more and more and more of these spotted, struck, speckled, or, or uh, streaked animals. So he has the beginning now of his own flock. This is amazing. Now this gets even more interesting. He further divides the flock into the strong and the weak. Again, he's observing the animals. He knows the stronger animals. He knows the weaker animals. And he uses his rods in the water when the stronger animals come to drink and doesn't put them in the water when the weaker animals come to drink. So again, increasing his 
number of off-colored animals. And Laban's flock now begins to be composed of the much weaker animals. That's where he leaves. But all the while, despite all of his activity, despite all of his practices, all the while, who's at work behind the scenes? God is at work behind the scenes. This is absolutely marvelous to me. God is faithful to his purpose. God is at work behind the scenes. Despite all of Jacob's efforts, it is God, God that produces all of the off-colored animals. It wasn't the colored rods, the striped rods at all. It was God. Jacob made a good faith effort to try to influence the flocks. But it was God. Turn to chapter 31, the next page. Verses 9 through 12. Now Jacob again is under threat from Laban's sons, and he's going to flee. He's going to get out of there. He's going back to, to Beersheba. He's talking to his wives, and he's saying, we're leaving. And he's giving them the reason why, so that they will go with him without argument. And in verse 9, he says this. He tells them that God has taken away your father's livestock and has given to me. God has done this. God has prospered me. In breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw the male goats mating with the flock, that these male goats were streaked, speckled, or spotted. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. So in the midst of all of Jacob's exercises, God gives him a dream. And in the dream, God reveals that when the animals were in heat, when they were mating by the water troughs, that the male animals were all streaked, Spreckled or spotted. Now, if you were to look at the animals, the animals were not, in fact, streaked, speckled, or spotted. They were all whole-colored animals. So what's God saying to him? He's saying these animals were apparently heterozygous, meaning that they carried the particular genes for streaks, spots, and speckles even though their coats were all solid color. God knew the true nature of the animals. Jacob did not. Jacob knew that there would be a certain percentage, and he didn't know who those animal, which animals they were, nor could Jacob control them. But God knew which animals were, and God knew how to control them. Amazing. But more than that, the animals that are homozygous, in other words, they could only produce offspring colored like themselves, were apparently restrained by God from reproducing. Because God says to him, he says, in the dream, look, he says, only the speckled, spotted, and streaked animals are reproducing. None of the homozygous ones. So only the animals capable of producing off-colored offspring were mating. Is that cool? And God also reveals in the dream that the reason he had done this was his awareness of what? All that Laban had been doing to his buddy Jacob. Beloved, you and I do not have to worry and we do not have to get even with people. God knows what's going on, doesn't he? God knows who's teasing us. 
God knows who is using us. God knows who is mistreating. God knows. And he will indeed, after we have suffered for a little while, he will confirm, establish, perfect, and strengthen us, says Peter. God will do that. That relieves us of anxiety, or at least a measure of it anyway. Lord, you know exactly what's going on here. You know how I'm being treated. I had been mistreated for 14 years. And Laban, or Jacob will go back and he'll, he'll confront Laban. He says, you've, you've changed my wages 10 times. But God knows all about it. God is working out his will. And at the appointed hour, he will vindicate us. We have that hope. We have that confidence. That frees us up. That frees us up to minister His grace, His love, His kindness. That's why, that's why Jesus says that when people curse you, bless them in return. Why? Because you know. You know that those curses are not going to have an effect on you. Because you know that you have a God who is guarding your life and who is with you. Like He said to Jacob, I'll be with you every place you go. I don't have to curse back. I can return a blessing for a cursing. And so God revealed in that dream that the reason he had done all this was his awareness of all that Laban had been doing to Jacob. God is vindicating Jacob. So within a space of about six years, Jacob's flocks had grown very large. And verse 43 says that he had prospered greatly. He had done so not by dishonest means. He didn't have to resort to the means that were so part of his old nature. God was changing his nature. He did so, God blessed him through honest efforts, which by all normal standards should have been even greater benefit to Laban than to himself. The God of his fathers, his God, had intervened in a wonderful and miraculous way. The Bible says in Psalm 112, verse 4, that light arises in the midst of the darkness for the upright. It's not that we're waiting for a light at the end of the tunnel to show up. That any moment, any moment, God will cause light arise in the midst of the darkness. We have a great hope, beloved, a great hope. There is a God who has called us to his purpose. And as much as we kick against it and we wiggle against it and we move against his purpose, he is shaping us and sometimes he'll use 14 years of our life to get us to acknowledge his purpose and to come to a place where we submit and we say with all of our heart, or at least most of our heart, Lord, your will be done. And not in a resigned fashion, but in a fashion that says, Lord, your will is the very best. I want your will. There's one thing to just saying it, and there's another thing to meaning it. Isn't that true? So many times we say, Lord, your will be done, your will be done. We don't really think about it necessarily, nor the cost. Lord, your will be done. It's going to take some real work in me to get me to the place where your will will be done in my life. 
and that I'm an active, willing participant in that. But when we get there, it is a joyful time. But we have a vision for that. And so we have a hope for the future. We have a, we have a, a joy that we can long and longingly look at, knowing that God is going to get us to that place. I'm not what I was. I'm not what I ought to be. But God is indeed changing my life. But remember, it's just a process. It's just going to take some time. We be patient. We be patient, trusting God. God is not off. He's not forgotten us. He knows every detail of our life. Again, he knows the perfect purpose, and he's working out that purpose and will for each and every one of us. We see this in Jacob's life. Despite all that Jacob does, it's God who brings about the results. It's God who brings about the harvest in our life and as well through our life and into the lives of others. Amen? Shall we pray? Lord, we do thank you for your word and for the truth that you show us. Thank you, Lord, for how you've changed Jacob. And Lord, you brought him to the place now where he can go back, go back home and he can engage his brother Esau, Lord, and he can seek to bless Esau. Father, thank you that you're doing the same things in our lives. You take raw material, you take selfish people, you take people who are clueless, self-absorbed. Lord, how you begin to work in us and change us and transform us. I pray, Father, that you would re- renew that vision in each and every one of us, the work that you're doing. And we thank you for Jesus, who made it all possible. Jesus, who died on the cross so that we might, we might come into your family. Thank you, Lord. We love you this morning, and we do worship you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen.